Good morning, church family. Hope you've got your Bibles with you. You go ahead and turn to the book of Haggai. If you were not with us last week, it's at the end of your Old Testament. Haggai, Zephaniah, Malachi, Zacharias are in there. They're all really kind of short books, so you kind of got to look the book of Haggai. Troy did a really good job up here. I like that. Surprised me. I'm motivated. Yeah. You ever get motivated? What does it take to motivate you to do something? What do you, what do you see that makes you say, oh, yeah, I'm going to get after that? You know, whether it's, you know, I remember in middle school putting pictures in my locker of the muscle guide and remind me I need to be working out. Or uh, there was once, you know, Trace, you won't have any idea what I'm talking about, but there's this thing called layaway when I was a kid. <laughs> you know what that is? There is still layaway? I thought today you just bought it with other people's money and just went ahead and took it because you wanted it. When I was a kid, you couldn't just like go, hey, I can't afford this, but I'll take it anyways. At least I couldn't. And so we had this thing called layaway. And when I was in third grade, probably about 1985, I wanted this scooter at Walmart. And the scooter is like, I was into BMX and stuff, so it was like a, a scooter. It's not one of these little scooters with like you know, a tiny little wheel, and it was kind of a big wheel, and you could, had pegs, and you could do tricks on it, and things like that, and it was $50, and for me, that was a lot of money, okay, third grade, 1985, 50 bucks seemed like impossible, but I saw it, and the lady goes, well, you can put it on layaway, and I thought, well, this is wonderful, so what that means is, you go, I want that, and I'm going to pay for it, but they don't let you take it home yet, Trace, okay, until you've paid completely, and so, Every week, I would go home and find ways to make money because I was motivated to buy that scooter. It was my purpose in life. It was my why behind doing the dishes or learning how to iron the clothes. My mom would give me a quarter for every time I ironed a piece of clothing for her or, you know, cut the yard or just try to figure out. And I would go to Walmart at the end of the week, and I would dump out my change and, uh, you know, just give them my money. So after a little bit of time, though, you kind of start to forget what it is you're just doing all this work for and saving all your money for because, you know, $50 took me a while to save that money up. So what I started to do when I would go to Walmart at the end of the week is first before I went to the back of the store, you know, you paid the layaway lady at the very back of Walmart. Before I would go there, I would go to the bike section and look at my scooter. And then I would say, oh, yeah. And I would get excited and it would be remembering that feeling that I was going to have once I got it. Then I would go and dump all my change out. And finally, you know, I got to go home one day and take the scooter with me. Probably the best 50 bucks I ever spent to this moment still. Because I wore that scooter out. Didn't borrow money to buy it. You know, it's a great thing. Well, you know, there's, there's something about being motivated. You know, if you go to a wedding, you'll always hear a song at the reception by Journey. Don't stop believing, you know. Don't stop believing. Hold on to that feeling. Yes. You got to hold on to that feeling that you had in the beginning about why you started doing whatever it is that you set out to do. Don't stop. Don't give up. Well, if you remember, last week we started talking about the book of Haggai and, and that little video. I didn't even know we had that, by the way. That was fantastic. You know, um, I was all ready to talk and then the video started playing. But, but it recapped it pretty well for us. You know, God had sent the, the Israelites back out of captivity of Babylon, back to to their home in the promised land, but things were not the same, things were different. They were going to rebuild the temple, but they were met by opposition, and it kind of just got off track. 
back into living a very uncomfortable life, status quo, taking care of their own house, their own families, uh, but not really focusing on God and His work. Um, they worked really hard. They didn't really earn much. Remember last week we read that it was like they were working hard to get paid and then just putting it into a bag that had holes in it. No matter what they did, it didn't seem to add up what they were getting back from it. But then the prophet Haggai shows up and says, hey guys, look, it's been almost 20 years. God would like for you to get back to work on building his home. And what did the people do? They obeyed. They went right back to work. Like, this is amazing. This is one of the few times in the Old Testament where God says something to the Israelites will go, okay. And they just did it. I'm like, okay, so all's good, right? Right? Well, maybe. Let's see. Let's see what we find here in chapter 2. Less than one month, by the way, after they had gotten back to work. Okay, less than one month. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say this, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Okay, before Babylon destroyed it. Remember when King Solomon built this temple, how amazing it was? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? just wasn't the same as they were going back to rebuild it. Yet now, here's the command, be strong, underline that. Here's the command. O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, be strong, O Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Here's another command, work. And then I want you to circle the promise, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. What a great last song we sang, by the way, just right there, looking for the spirit's presence. Verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. That's, that's kind of like creation language right there, isn't it? God is reminding them who he is. He is creator God. He is sovereign God, all-powerful, almighty God. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And listen to this. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the word of hosts. Can we pray? Father God, we are so grateful for your word. I pray today as we read it, we would understand it correctly. Apply it to our lives powerfully, Lord. Help us to understand it the right way. Spirit, work in our hearts so that we will know the changes and commitments we need to make to you. Amen. What's your spiritual journey been like, if I might ask? You don't have to tell me, but just think through you know, I don't know about you. I accepted Christ when I was 15. I'm 43, so it's been about 28-ish years. Did I do that math right? Almost 30 years. Have you defeated all the sin in your life? Everything's going great? You wake up every morning and you crush this thing called Christianity? You just, is that you? No? No? I think if we're honest, and, and I'm guessing if you're like me, there's some good days and then there's some bad days. 
Sometimes there's like bad months, okay? And there's times where it just seems like we can't get over that hump. There's just that, you know, that one sin we can't seem to defeat. If we let it go too long, we get too discouraged, we might start asking ourselves some questions like, why would Jesus even die for someone like me? If I can be truthfully honest, there's even been Sunday mornings where I've come into a church home, maybe here at Heritage, and stood up and thought, I don't even deserve to be singing these songs I'm singing because I know the things that are going on in my life. I might even ask the question, can my life actually be fixed? Is God a big enough God to change the inside of Brian? Is all of this work even worth it? I want us to look for that answer today. You know, you've probably noticed that in the last two weeks, the book of Haggai is very concerned with dates and times of the year. And we saw that again right there in verse 1. And the date we find here at the beginning of chapter 2, the 21st day of the seventh month, was near the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the last and greatest of the annual feast for Israel. So this would have been a major gathering of all the people, well, all the people that were left, right, the remnant. And so Haggai had a great opportunity to address who? Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest, and all the people. The Feast of Tabernacles was a time of remembering God's great deeds in the past, especially during their time when they were wandering in the wilderness before they ever got to go into the promised land. During the festival, the people actually had to get out of their home and live outside of their houses for seven days in kind of like a fort made out of branches. It was to remind them of their wilderness experience. That's serious. I mean, you can imagine if today on July 4th we all moved out of our homes and like, you know, went and found one of the, one of the fields where wars took place or something and we just kind of camped out to remind us of, of what had happened for us to get our freedom in this land. That's what they were doing. They were moving out of their homes and building little forts with, with sticks and branches to remind them of what God had done. This also would have been a good time to remember the dedication of Solomon's first temple because that had happened during this festival also. So these people had a lot to celebrate because not only were they remembering the original Exodus, but if you think about it, this people, this generation in Haggai's time, they had kind of experienced their own Exodus, hadn't they? Coming out of Babylon and out of captivity back into the Promised Land. But their situation didn't seem to really match up with the, the stories of old, did it? You know, Joshua, when he led the people in, some really great, mighty acts of God. Where, where are those now? Where was the glory? That's what he says in verse 3. Who was left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? I mean, only a couple weeks in, and the people were already discouraged because as they looked around, saw what was going to, what was going to look like, they were... Rebuilding the temple, it was going to have the same dimensions as the first temple, but something was missing. You see, before Babylon destroyed the temple, God, because of the people's sin, generation after generation after generation of sin, if you go back and remember, his presence had left the temple. God basically left the people of Israel at the hands of their enemies. Babylon was able to come in and wipe out the city, tear down the temple, destroy everything basically, and take the people into captivity. So it was all good and well to rebuild the temple, but unless this, unless God filled it with his glory again, the people were starting to wonder, well, what's the point? 
you know, is it even worth it? Getting discouraged. They wanted to see the promise from Ezekiel 43 come true, that God's glory would actually once again return to the temple. So what I want us to look at today is that Haggai's message, he's coming to this discouraged group of people already a few weeks into their, their construction of the rebuilding of the temple. And he wants to remind them of four foundational truths on which they, and I would say, and we can safely build our lives. Four foundational truths on which they and we can safely build our lives. And the first truth is that there is a wonderful plan. You can write that down in your paper. There is a wonderful plan. God's plan of renovation is the perfect balance between activity on the part of the people, but also dependence upon him. You hear that? His perfect plan is this perfect balance between the people working, but also the people depending on God to work. God tells the people in verse 4, he says, be strong, get up and work. But God also has a role. Amen? Thankful for that. The people work and they depend on God to do what he has committed to do. See, God is faithful no matter what. No matter our unfaithfulness, God is faithful. Haggai is telling them to stick to the program even when it seems that things are not going to plan. Have you ever thought you were following God into a plan and then bailed because you didn't think it was turning out the way you thought it should? Remember your motivation. Remember the scooter. Don't stop believing. God is God, and his plans and his timing is perfect. But sometimes it's hard for us to remember that we're in the midst of a struggle. You, not, you might not be able to see around the corner just yet, but if you keep moving, you will get to the point where God wants to show you what he wants to show you. But we have to trust in him. Keep walking. It's the same for us. Transformation in our lives or that sanctification, that cleaning us up, making us more like the image of Christ, it doesn't happen by us just sitting back and, and wishing for it to happen. It doesn't happen that way. You know, we don't just go, oh, woe is me, God, I'm such a terrible sinner. Please let me wake up in the morning and everything be made right. It doesn't happen that way. We're supposed to get up, set out to work in pursuing God and obeying all of his commands. That's what he calls us to do. In the New Testament, Paul says this way in Galatians 6, 9, he says, Don't give up. Do not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Do not give up. Continue to work. And, of course, our work is not enough. We do know that. I don't care how many Sundays in a row you come and how many days in a row you get your Bible app checked off. If there's no power from God, there will be no transformation in your life. We cannot justify ourselves without the work of God. We also cannot glorify or sanctify ourselves without the work of God. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Have you heard that? The people and us need to remember that when God is with us, when his presence dwells with us, his favor is with us. That's a good thing. But we want his favor to be there 100% of the time in our minds. That means for us, we don't ever want to have to struggle. We don't ever want to have to go through a difficult time. And the first time we meet opposition, we tend to step back and go, oh, I must, I must not be on God's plan anymore because there's hard times. No, sometimes God allows us to go through difficult times so he can show his mighty power by helping us go through that. His power, his glory. 
We don't just work hard because God tells us to do that, but because of his promise to do what he's committed to do, we remember that he's also at work. He's also at work. We're joining him. Anybody want to be on God's team and then let him down? No, we're joining him. He's like the team captain. We're on the best team there could possibly be on. We have to work our tail off because we know he's always going to do his part. When I was a kid, I never wanted to let down the best kid on the team. The best kid on the team was usually also the hardest worker. Funny how that works out, isn't it? But if you weren't the best kid on the team, you did not want to let that kid down because you knew he was working his tail off. Church family, we're to go to work. We're going to go to work because our team captain, he is at work tirelessly, never resting, trying to build his kingdom. We get to be a part of that. And because of this, we can be sure that our work will not be done in vain. This is the promise, by the way, that God made all the way back when he rescued the people out of Egypt. What did he say? That he would be their God and they would be his people. Moses went so far to say that without God's presence, they were pretty much worthless. Moses in Exodus 33, verse 15 and 16 said this. And he said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. Moses is saying this, without God's presence, there's nothing to mark the people of Israel as different from all the other nations in the world. Church family, without God's presence in your life, there is nothing to mark us different from all the other people in the world. God's presence and what that symbolized is the reason it was so important for them to rebuild the temple. God is continuing to keep that covenant promise that he made all those generations before. Haggai 2, verse 5, according to the covenant. Every time you see the word covenant in the Bible, you should square it or something or make it obvious to you. God is continuing to keep this covenant. According to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. There might as well be a therefore before fear not. Because at this point he has said, work, work, be strong, work, be strong. I'm with you. He says, my presence is with you. My spirit remains in you. Therefore, fear not. What are you worried about? Why are you discouraged? I'm with you. The promise is still the same. Motivation is still the same. Don't stop believing in my promise back there. Continue to be motivated by your original why, your purpose. God finishes what he starts. He was still working in the people of Israel and has promised to us even that he will finish the work he begins in us. Paul in Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When things aren't going well, church family, when, when God seems far away, when we just can't beat that one specific sin, our tendency is to pull away, to, to back up a little bit, pull away from the church, pull away from our time in prayer, pull away from our time in the word, pull away from the places where we serve the kingdom. But that's not God's plan. Do you know whose plan that is? The enemy. That's Satan's plan. That's the devil's plan to get you to pull away from all the things that God had put in your life to keep pushing you toward him and toward the final uh, Final, finalizing of his goal to build his kingdom. And we play right into the devil's plan when we give up and we stop trusting God. 
God's wonderful plan is for us to work, keep moving forward, and remember the promise that God is always with us, and he was working in us. The next reminder is that we have a wonderful goal. Second thing, a wonderful goal. And the wonderful goal is this, that we would be filled with God's glory. The people quickly realized, only a few weeks into construction, that it didn't look or feel the same way as the first temple did. There were still some of them that would have been old enough to remember the first temple. And they started to wonder, you know, where are they going to get all the, the silver and gold and all the things that made the temple, the first temple, look so nice, so incredible. The nation of Israel at this point, they looked way different than they did in King Solomon's day, okay? They just came out of captivity. They're still under the rule of the Persians. There wasn't a lot of, like, extra gold and silver just laying around, okay? But God encourages them. Look at verse 7. And I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. In verse 8, he says, he reminds them, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. God says, hey, 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 I got this. You ever say that to your kids when they start to freak out a little bit and they get all nervous and afraid about what's going on? You're like, it's okay, I got this. That's what we do at the office when they all start to get crazy. Sid goes, okay, I got this, y'all. God says, I got this. Don't stress about the little things. The gold and the silver and all that stuff. I know you got nothing right now. It's all mine. If we need it, we got it. I'm going to shake the nations and they're going to come and pay for all that for us. And in case you're wondering, that is exactly what happened. If you look in Ezra chapter 6, verse 8, King Darius, the ruler of Persia, he actually makes a decree. Ezra 6, 8 says this, Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. <laughs> Not only did God provide everything, but it didn't even cost the Israelites anything at all. God said, I'm going to shake the other nations, and they're going to bring their treasures and pay for it. That's exactly what happened. I love it when God speaks because it always comes true. All the people had to do was be obedient and let God provide. Has God ever told you to sit back and let him provide, and you feel like you had to get in the way and manipulate things because you just didn't quite trust God? That's silly, isn't it? I've done that. It's a great reminder for us when we struggle, and even when we resist God's call in our lives, whatever that might be, because we lack faith in God's provision, which is the craziest thing of all the world, because all the things in the world are his. Anything that we might would need to fulfill his call in our lives, he owns and will provide it at the right time. Church family, I want you to hear me say this. Go ahead and write this in the top of your book, chapter 2. God is always enough. God is always enough. But it wasn't just the outward appearance of the temple, okay? The people knew that without what the temple symbolized, God's presence being with them, that the whole thing didn't really matter much. Remember, even when the temple was just a tabernacle in the wilderness, this thing that they would, this tent they would set up and tear down, set up and tear down as they moved. The reason that the people of Israel were always so successful is because why? Because as the temple, as the tabernacle moved in front of them, God's presence was moving with them, right? Remember the cloud and the fire and all these incredible, mighty acts of God? And the people knew, look, even if we do rebuild this thing, if God's presence is not with us in the temple, it really doesn't matter all that much. 
A new shiny temple wasn't the point. It had to be filled with God's presence and glory to have the power. And can I tell you something, church family? God doesn't only want to change you a bit. He doesn't want to just change your habits and your patterns. He wants your life to shine in the world because he fills your life with his glory, with his grace. He wants you to be a huge billboard to the world. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 1, 5 and 6. He says, God predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ so that we might be to the praise of his glorious grace. Our main purpose in life is to bring glory to God. And I know that goes against every little part of your body because we so much want to wake up and receive the glory. But God created us to give him glory. We said last week, he's not even apologizing for being the one that wants it. He's the only one that deserves it. You can dress it up on Sunday mornings. You can act in a certain way in front of your Christian friends. You can even slap one of those bumper stickers on your car that says, Jesus is my homeboy or something like that. Okay? But if you're not filled with the glory of God, with his presence, with his power, it won't really matter. That's the wonderful goal that we would be filled with God's glory. Thirdly, the people are reminded of the promise of a wonderful Savior. You see, the people, they wanted to see the fulfillment of the final promise in our passage today, that the glory of God will once again fill this place, this house, and give them peace. Shalom, glory and peace. The glory of God, fill the temple, and give them peace. Glory and peace. Look at verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. It was hard for them to believe that at that moment. But he's making a promise. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will get peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Glory and peace. The Feast of the Tabernacles was designed for when God's people entered into the promised land. It was to remind them of their time in the wilderness and their deep longing to get in there. The people Haggai was talking to, though, in a way, they're like the generation that died in the wilderness before they ever got to go in. Because these people, they didn't get to see the final promise fulfilled from verse 9. It was still another 500 or so years before God sent his son Jesus to the earth. Haggai's generation died still waiting, still hoping, never seeing the fulfillment of this promise, the promise of the long-awaited Messiah, when the correct world order would be brought back in by God and God's people would be, you know, the, the number one nation again. Of course, Jesus had different plans for his kingdom later, we would learn. But Jesus is the one in whom the fullness of God's glory dwells. Glory. And Jesus came to bring peace. On earth, glory, peace. In the book of Luke, chapter 2, we read this usually just once a year, right? At Christmas time. Luke 2, verse 13 and 14. And suddenly there was an, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory and peace, the announcement at the birth of the Son of God. And when they took that baby Jesus to the temple, by the way, the rebuilt temple for the first time, a man named Simeon described him as a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. 
just like Haggai had promised some 500 years before, the glory of God returned to the temple to bring peace to the world. Look at verse 9 again. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. The latter will be greater. When the Pharisees tested Jesus about the Sabbath and his disciples eating on the Sabbath as they walked through a field, he reminded them about King David and the priests and how they acted wrongly in the temple yet were not considered guilty. Listen to what he said in Matthew 12, verse 6. This is Jesus, your Lord, speaking. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Don't you love it when that stuff happens in the Bible? Jesus himself said, hey, 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 excuse me. Something greater than the temple is here. Just like Haggai said, the word of the Lord says that the glory of this house shall be greater than the former. This was all pointing to a wonderful Savior. Jesus is the greater glory because in him the fullness of God's glory dwells and he comes to offer peace to all the nations. When God sent Jesus into the world, God shook the world, fulfilling the promise of Haggai. God will definitely finish what he started, bringing us and the world into his peace, his shalom, his perfection. He has done this through Jesus. We have a wonderful Savior. Amen. Finally, this passage looks to a wonderful hope. Because the first coming of Jesus is not the end, is it? The Feast of Tabernacles was a time to look back, but also to look forward. And in the same way, Christians today are to look back at the cross of Christ, remembering how God gave us salvation and established peace, began it with us, by giving us Christ's righteousness. righteousness. On that day, God shook the world and changed everything. But there's also a day coming in the forward future that we should be looking to. One last time when God will shake the world, I want you to look at this slide with me real quickly. With the first coming of Christ, God established his kingdom. He showed his glory and he made peace with us. That's the first coming of Christ. With the second and the final coming of Christ, God's kingdom will be fully established. His glory will fill the world, not just some will see it. And his peace will reign forevermore. Amen? This backward and this forward looking is what we do every time we take communion on the Lord's Supper. Just like last week, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 said that as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, look backwards, until he comes, look forward. We look back at the cross and forward to Christ's return. This is your answer for those difficult times. It's your motivation. It's your why. It's your purpose. This is the answer for when you're asking the question, is it even worth it? There's some people here today that are Christians, and they know, yes, it's worth it. They are remembering right now their motivation, their why. They're remembering Jesus on the cross and bringing peace to them, making them right again with God. But there are some here today that they have nothing to look back at. No time in your life maybe when Jesus' act on the cross was counted to you as righteousness. So before God today, you would still be counted as guilty. No time in your life when his act on the cross meant forgiveness of your sins, meaning peace in your life with God, because you've never committed to following Jesus with your life. 
I hope there's not many like that in here today. But if you've never trusted Jesus and his act on the cross to be enough to cover your sins, you've never received God's gift of grace because you've not accepted it by faith in Jesus. And because you don't have that to look back on, you also don't have a hope to look forward to. That's the danger in not receiving the gift of grace from God through faith in Christ, is that there is no eternal hope at the end of your life. And I can understand, my friend, why you would ask, can my life be fixed? I can understand why you might ask, is it even worth it? But I can confidently tell you today that the answer is yes. You just have to say yes to him. There's only one way. It's a resounding yes. Your life can be fixed. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other path. There is no other way. The only motivation to having eternal hope is trusting in Jesus as your Savior. Trusting in his act on the cross to be enough to pay for all your sins, past, present, and future. If we would put our faith in Jesus and receive God's gift of grace, then we can look at the cross of Jesus in the back and what he's done for us. But we will also have an unwavering hope for our eternal future. Amen. Can we pray? Father, you are such a loving God. A God who loves unconditionally. A faithful God. A God who finishes what you start. Thank you for the reminder today from your word that we are to keep our eyes fixed on you. The author and the finisher of our faith. Remind us to work because you are at work in our lives. And you always finish what you begin. Father, for those that maybe entered the room today with nothing to look back on, no hope to look forward to, I pray that, that your spirit would be at work in their heart right now, Lord. That because of your word, your powerful, true word, they might come to know Jesus, to put their faith in the one who can rescue them from their sin. The one who can bring them out of captivity and slavery into your promised land. Thank you for your promises and thank you that you are always fulfilling them. Thank you for the cross of Jesus and for your grace. We love you, Lord. Amen.